North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. After nuclear negotiations between North Korea and the United States crumbled, North Korea said that there was no way the U.S. would need a two-week deadline to return with an alternative plan. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. In this episode of The Impossible State, I'm joined by CSIS's Victor Cha, as always, and by Sumi Terry, senior fellow at CSIS's Korea chair. We'll discuss the failed U.S.-North Korea Stockholm talks that happened in early October and what that means for the stalled nuclear negotiations. So, Victor and Sue, we're working-level talks in Stockholm, major breakdown here. What's going on? What's your assessment? So these were the long-awaited working-level talks between the U.S. and DPRK that has been promised at every meeting between Kim and Trump going back to Singapore. These finally happened. And, you know, I mean, unfortunately, there was a lot of expectations on these meetings because that's what everybody was waiting for. Like, we were really going to get down to brass tacks, right, and talk about steps towards denuclearization. And what happens in the end is they meet, and then the North Korean delegate comes out and says, these talks are a failure, right? U.S. Doesn't, isn't creative. They don't have any new positions, and then they leave, right? Which is completely opposite than the State Department's reaction was that these were good talks. You know, they didn't reach a conclusion, but, you know, it's the beginning of a process. So there's clearly a disconnect there. Personally, I do think it's part of a process and that, and Sue can speak to this as well, that the North Koreans like to pound the table initially right, as, as leverage. But I do think there'll be more talks going forward. Sue, what do you think? I'm not sure about more talks. I do agree that this has to do with unrealistic expectation. It's President Trump's fault in a way because he raised Kim's expectations so high by talking about how much you know, they were in love, dismissing North Korea's short-range missile tests, which were all in violation of UN sanctions as unimportant, Borton getting fired. I think Kim came in with thinking, you know, again, with unrealistic expectations, just like Hanoi. But now I'm concerned that he's emboldened into thinking that he can achieve massive lifting of U.S. sanctions in return for a very small step like shutting down the Yongbyon nuclear facility. So because he has unrealistic expectation and he's emboldened, and he's watching what's happening domestically in Washington uh, and President Trump's political troubles with impeachment process and all of that, it only raises Kim's confidence even higher that somehow he thinks it's politically imperative for Trump to achieve a foreign policy win. Uh, So I'm just uh, concerned that they're going to be more uh, stubborn. You know, this is what we've seen in Stockholm. They demanded just so much, like in terms of what they wanted, which is maximal sanctions relief for very minimal concessions. So I'm concerned about that. So I think what Sue was talking about is the concern that these failed talks may lead to more talks that are inconclusive that will then lead eventually to another summit because there's no other way that they can resolve these issues except at the summit level, and then you get a bad deal. I think that's highly possible. Or another failed summit. Or another failed summit. But I I don't think Trump can afford another failed summit. I think- um, So he gets a bad deal. He gets a bad deal. And at least the way the press was reporting it, the press was reporting essentially what, what, what people were talking about was 
that North Korea would shut down the main reactor complex at Yongbyon. They had effectively promised not to produce more fissile material, and then they would make a broader commitment to turn over in the future, which mean, could mean you know whenever in the future, um, all of its weapons to the international community. And in return for that, they would get partial sanctions lifting, peace regime, all these other things. That's what the press has reported. If that is true, that is a bad deal, right? It is a bad deal because first, North Korea really doesn't need Yongbyon anymore. Second, there's no talk about verification and all of that. Like, how is all of this going to be verified? But that could be the kind of bad deal that Trump would say it's the best deal ever. You know, it's just like he's saying about U.S.-China trade. This interim step is the best agreement ever made, right? And so he could do something like that. And it's a bad deal because there's no verification and because, as we have documented CSIS, there's nothing on ballistic missiles. And then there's nothing on, you know, which I think is a real consideration now. There's submarine capability and there's submarine-launched ballistic missile capability. And we just showed in your satellite imagery, Victor, just what the submarine's capable of doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we've done two reports on this and show very clearly that this uh, shipyard at Chimpo is quite active now. Yeah. And that, uh, I mean, we, you know, we fingered the missile test barge where we saw activity there that was consistent with uh, past practice in terms of getting that barge ready for some sort of test launch. And that's what they did. We're headed down a bad road here, Sue. Yeah, no. And I think we are just left with really bad options, right? Either give North Korea massive sanctions relief up front or for very little in return, or we're going to have to watch North Korea returning to, I say, you know, provocations, testing nuclear weapons and ICBMs. Because they gave us the expiration of the this year-end deadline uh, for Kim to have a some sort of a deal with Trump. So if we don't do it, if we don't give in to a bad deal, um, that's I'm afraid they will return to testing. And I think ultimately North Korea's game plan is to stall. Right? They, they show up, they talk, they break off talks, show up, talk, break off talks, and they're going to repeat this as long as necessary uh, until they get a, either a great deal from Trump or they'll return to testing. All the while, as our, the, our reports showed, improving and expanding their nuclear missile program. So unless we are ready to, or unless President Trump is prepared to make major concessions, um, you know, we're now also, the, another possibility is that North Korea will resume to major provocations. I say, you know, it's already October. They said end of the year deadline. So this is not too far away. Right, they have said an end of the year deadline. You know, obviously we have the impeachment inquiry, so they need some, he, he wants some sort of other big, flashy, bright object to distract attention. You know, we're going to be entering the, you know, the throes of an election campaign, so he's going to want to show some results. And then John Bolton is no longer in the White House. And if there is anybody who would stand against a bad deal, it's John Bolton. And I don't really think that there's anybody else in the U.S. government at the principal's level who's going to stand against a bad deal the way that Trump has now reorganized his team. And you have to think now, especially with what's going on in Turkey and Syria, that he has to prove that he has a foreign policy win and he has to prove that he really is strategic. Yeah, that's another very important element of it too. So essentially what he wants, I think, are interim deals that can put this stuff you know, on the back burner so he can focus on the campaign. So he's got this interim deal with China, which 
is entirely designed to try to help the farmers and you know other people in in these key states. <laughs> a North Korea deal isn't going to help him in that sense, but it does allow him to say, "Look, he's my friend. They're not. They haven't tested a nuclear device compared to where we were. You know, they've rewritten the script, so they say Obama was going close to war, which is not true at all. Um, and now this is sort of on the back burner, so I can focus on the campaign. And for the North Koreans, right? As Sue said. That's not a bad outcome either. Right? It's, a win, it's a win for them. Yeah, because they get lifting of sanctions, and they don't know who's going to win the election anyway, so they'll just sit. They got their sanctions lifting, and they'll just sit back. And yeah, watch. meanwhile, they've got lifting of sanctions. They're testing whatever they want. They're moving forward with ballistics and delivery systems, and they got no Bolton. Yeah. You know, and so, and so they're fine. And on President Trump's end, he's trying to show that he has a grand strategy. Isn't he? Well, yeah, I think he's trying to show it. I, I don't think he has one, but I do think if you aggregate his instincts, it does amount to a grand strategy that is very isolation. It's mercantilist yeah. and it's isolationist. But that is, is that is his strategy. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think what's interesting is, though, yes, I think North Korea will obviously take a bad deal. Why not? But because our expectation is so high, we really have to give a lot so if we don't, I think North Korea's backup strategy is to wait the Trump administration out. It's also not bad right now because there are all kinds of indications that North Korea is getting some sort of breathing space with sanctions relief from Beijing. So as long as Pyongyang can keep China on its side, but if Kim can just keep Xi Jinping on his side in the weeks and months ahead, they're not in such a bad position. So I, this is why I say I think you know North Korea is a win-win for North Korea either get a great deal out of the Trump administration, or if not, then so be it. They will return to provocations with a nuclear and ICBM testing and wait it out. We're not going to be able to go back to fire and fury, not second time around, not with Trump weekend like this, and, and China and Russia and South Korea have all moved on. We're not going to be able to go back to fire and fury. So this is not a bad scenario, whatever happens with North Korea from North Korean perspective. Right. And the North Koreans are also, you know, enjoying the fact that South Korea and Japan are split and they remain split. And I'm sure they're going to watch with a great deal of interest in terms of how the special measures or cost-sharing negotiations between South Korea and the United States end up. That's also something that has to be decided by the end of this year. And the U.S. wants Korea to pay five times what it's been paying for the burden of U.S. forces in Korea, and they only have 10 weeks left, and they've just started the negotiation. So this this is not going to end well either. Let's talk about that five times thing you just said. Essentially, Korea has entered into four-year agreements in the past where they provided a portion of the cost of maintaining U.S. forces in Korea. It's you know the non-personnel cost of maintaining U.S. forces in Korea, and it's a negotiation every four years. And you know essentially, it's come out to about uh, the last agreement about one billion dollars. The Trump administration wants five billion dollars in the next agreement. So they've been paying us a billion mm -hmm. to maintain our force posture mm -hmm. there, mm -hmm. but now the Trump administration wants five times that. Five times that, yeah, five times what they have historically been paying for this. And, you know, that number is just ridiculous. Where did the number come from? So they, there apparently is a calculation that has been done that comes up with this number. So, you know, who knows, did the chicken or the egg come first? Did they come up with this number? Did Trump just state this number? And then they, you know, did the math, did the accounting to make this number a reality? 
either way, it's, you know, it is way beyond anything that um, has been a part of past negotiations. It is, you know, it's essentially trying to make a profit. It's not trying to yeah. maintain costs. It's trying to make a profit, um, which is traditionally what, not what the United States does with its allies. forces, <laughs> yeah. with its allies and with its forces abroad and um, overseas. Um, because our forces are there not just to protect Korea, but they're there to protect our interests. Yeah, to protect our interests. Yeah. I mean, it's not a, it's not a favor to Korea. It's there, there to protect our interests. So this is going to be really problematic, too, when we get towards the end of the year. You know, as Sue said, you know, you could have the North Koreans either benefiting from a bad deal or not having a deal and going back, going on their own fire and fury warpath. Uh, in the meantime, Korea-Japan relations don't look like they're getting any better. And the U.S. and South Korea could really be at each other's throats over dollars and cents. Is South Korea inclined to pay this $5 billion? I don't know, Sue. What do you think? No, I think not, they're not paying $5 billion. I think they'll try to stall, maybe go up a little bit. But they should be concerned. Uh, I think it's really interesting for the Moon administration, Moon Jae-in administration, because on one hand, they like, not that they like Trump, but they deal with President Trump. And in, in maybe some of them even want President Trump to get reelected only because of this North Korea engagement policy, dialogue, negotiation with North Korea. And that's what Moon administration wants. But on the other hand, I mean, look what, what President Trump is doing with the alliance. I mean, this on burden sharing, this is absolutely ridiculous, right? $5 billion. So I think the Moon Jae-in government uh, is, is kind of there in a difficult spot. On one hand, they want to make progress with North Korea, uh, make a deal. Uh, and on the other hand, they have to deal with these alliance issues and they should be concerned. Look what President Trump has done with his decision to pull U.S. troops out of northern Syria. So, you know, anything is possible. They shouldn't be comfortable thinking that that's not in play. I see this president either reducing U.S. troops if he doesn't, if he doesn't like, you know, the, how the negotiation is going or even pulling the U.S. troops out of South Korea. It's not unthinkable with this president. Yeah, and it, you could get the perfect storm, which is a bad deal where you don't really solve the nuclear issue, not good for U.S. national security or Korea's. But along with a bad deal, a peace declaration, right? Saying Kim's my friend, we made a deal, best deal ever, no war, no, you know. His whole thing is, I want to get out of endless wars, right? right. So he probably sees Korea as a, just like Syria sees it as an endless war. And I want our soldiers home. And I want our soldiers home. So he could say, you know, I've got a great deal, peace declaration, the SM negotiation fails, South Korea doesn't want to pay all this money. Okay, then we'll just pull our forces out, or we'll pull a portion of our forces out. Or we'll start talking about pulling a portion of our forces out because it's always great to bring the troops home when there's peace and when others don't want to pay. And, you know, that's a great foreign policy campaign line to his base as well. So you have a perfect storm, right? And, um, you know, Sue and I have been worried about this for a while. People don't talk about it that much. It's certainly not talked about in Korea because, you know, in Korea, the general belief is, oh, the United States wants to keep its forces there so that, you know, Boeing and Lockheed and everybody can continue to sell airplanes and tanks and all this other stuff. It's a nonsense argument, but it's one that's been traditionally quite popular in Korea. And so I think there's a real blind spot in Korea for something like this happening, you know, towards the end of this year. What would be interesting is to sort of see what happens with this parliamentary election that will be taking place in April in South Korea, where, um, and that's a big 
there's a big election that Moon administration is very focused on. And there's all kinds of domestic drama right now in South Korea. But um, it'll be interesting to see how all of this is playing out. If this, as Victor said, if there's this perfect storm, the Moon administration really put all of its eggs in, in North Korea basket. So if that's not going anywhere, what if, you know, it'll be interesting to see. It's, it's sort of a, it's, it's, it's a big benchmark in South Korea. It's a big date coming up in April. Yeah. You know, I don't want to like sound just like a dark cloud all the time, but, right. but so, you know, I've written on and studied alliances, right? Alliances for a long time. And so you look, when alliances start to fray, you look for certain things, right? And so one of the things you look for is when there's decoupling taking place. And so, as Sue said, you know, North Korea has done all of these ballistic missile tests lately, these short-range ballistic missile tests that are threatening to Japan and Korea. And Trump says, I don't really care about those. Everybody does them. I don't really care. That's decoupling U.S. homeland security from peninsular security. Then the Koreans are saying, we're not going to renew the intelligence sharing agreement with Japan, right? G the GSOMIA agreement. That's the Koreans decoupling from Japan, saying, like, we don't share the same threat. Like, we're not as threatened by North Korea as you are. We don't need to share intel with you. The Japanese are taking the Koreans off the whitelist, right? The export whitelist for these, like, key components for semiconductor production and things. That's economically decoupling from Korea. So there's decoupling taking place among three countries that are supposed to be these tightly knit allies. That's a really bad sign. And right now, it doesn't seem to be getting better. It just seems to be getting worse. What do you all think is the next move for the United States here? I think that, you know, Trump will continue to defend Kim Jong-un's intentions in public. I think he's going to continue to want another summit and to be able to announce some sort of deal at that summit. And it sounds like what's standing in the way now is that the United States is not willing to lift sanctions sooner rather than later. And this is the part I'm not sure of because Trump loves sanctions, whether he's actually going to do that because of all the other stuff that's happening, like, you know, all the criticism he's taking on Syria, the, the impeachment inquiry, all these other things, whether that's going to be enough to allow him to say, all right, let's just lift them, you know, as long as I can announce a big deal at the end. You know, I think there may be more working level talks, which will eventually be inconclusive because the working level people are just not empowered on the North Korean side to talk about these issues the nuclear issue. And then only the leader can answer those questions, which is what the North Koreans always say. Um, and then that leads in only one direction, another meeting, another summit, right? It's harder for Trump to take a fourth summit if, he, if, it's, if it has a chance of failing. But if he knows that the answer to success of that meeting is in his hands, in the sense that he just has to make a decision to lift sanctions, then he might do it, right? See what I'm saying? So yeah. he, he might be more willing. He won't want to walk into one that's going to fail. But if he knows, based on what his people have told him, that he holds the key, which is if he's willing to lift sanctions, then he may just do it and just say, all right, let's take the meeting and then I can announce this great deal. The problem, though, is that North Korea wants a lot of sanctions lifted. Not even Because I think U.S. may have offered or at least was thinking about partial suspended sanctions whether it's textile and coal exports, for some months, some time period with snapback snap back measures. But Kim wants much more significant sanctions relief, right? Remember in Hanoi, Kim demanded relief from five UNSC sanctions resolutions. These resolutions together 
curtail financial and shipping activities. You know, they are important. They restrict crude and fuel exports. They ban exports of industrial machinery and transportation vehicles and metals and so on. These are important sanctions. So the problem is, I think Kim is not satisfied with a little bit of here and there, you know, suspension of sanctions. He's just asking for so much. So while I agree with a lot that Victor is saying, I'm, I think I'm a little bit pessimistic that we could just return to, you know, Kim just saying, you know what? You're not, I'm, I'm calling you bluff. If you're not giving me this massive sanctions relief, I'm not going there. I'm not even going to an interim deal. I'm very pessimistic about potential return to provocations. I don't know if you guys saw these pictures that the North Koreans released recently with uh, on Kim. On the white Otto. horse? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> white yeah. horse, um, you know, hiking up the Baekdu mountain. Actually, it's, it's kind of funny, but it's not because this, you know, Baekdu mountain is perhaps the most important and symbolic, really a holy site to North Koreans. It has a very deep connection, you know, right, hereditary connection to the founding father, Kim Il-sung, the whole Baekdu bloodline rhetoric. So while these pictures kind of seem funny, I, I, I'm kind of concerned that them releasing these pictures saying that, you know, Kim went there to meditate and make important decisions and then talked about holding a hard line against making concessions to the outside world. All of these, I see it as a precursor to potential return to provocation. So I, I, I absolutely agree that Trump wants an interim deal and, and he might go there. Uh, I'm concerned that, you know, because Kim wants so much, so his you know, plan is to return to provocations and, and, and say, now what are you going to do? So I'm worried about what's coming in the in, in the next few months. So I don't know which is worse, a return to provocations, like Sue was talking about, you know, the white horse and the return to provocations or a bad deal. I'm not sure which is worse. <laughs> right. You know, because the bad deal can actually lead to things that damage the alliance. Whereas provocations, you know, might actually cause the alliance to cohere Unless the South Koreans blame it all on the United States, right? You know, this government in South Korea says, oh, it's all the U.S. fault that the North Koreans are back on a provocation track. So I think we agree that neither of those outcomes are good, that both of them are bad. But as we often are in the case of North Korea, I'm not sure which one's worse. <laughs> we'll have to see. I mean, it's going to be an interesting few weeks coming up. Not Again, not just on the North Korea issue, but because of this SMA negotiations, you know, they have 10 weeks. They have 10 weeks to negotiate what which would be a unprecedented new agreement on uh, cost sharing that then would have implications for US alliance relationships around the world because if they can get this with Korea they're going to ask the same thing of Japan NATO you know they're going to start asking all the allies for these sorts of huge increases right how much are we going to ask Germany for yeah Germany too i mean they you know all of these are on the on the chopping block Korea just happens because of timing to be the first one this is something really to watch. Yeah, it, I think it really is. And, and, you know, some of the work that we've done here at CSIS shows social media scraping that the South Korean public pays a lot of attention to the SMA issue. Whenever there's a story about SMA, the commentary on social media in South Korea is exponentially larger than the commentary on a North Korea story. Whereas here in the United States, like people don't even know what this is, right? They have sure. no idea what this is. So there's a real chance for this big perception gap between the U.S. and South Korea if these negotiations go south, where there'll be you know people demonstrating and protesting and on social media in South Korea and in the United States, people are being like, "What's 
what is SMA? I don't even know what that's about, right? Not, right it affects their pocketbook directly, and here it may or may not. Right. And, and again, it's just another thing that corrodes the alliance even further. It's something to watch. Something to talk about in weeks to come. Victor, Sue, as always, thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean Peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.